Thank you, guys. That's great. Well, if you have your Bibles, we want to turn to the book of Proverbs again. And uh, Proverbs chapter 11 is where we started last week. In fact, last week, we started probably one of the single greatest studies that you're ever going to take in the Bible uh, on the aspect of giving us a complete context uh, of, of the Christian life. Christian life can be a very complex concept. It can be something that, uh, you know, the average person, uh, they don't get a right uh, understanding of it. It eludes them all of their life. Not that they don't get saved, but they never figure out exactly what, how Christianity is the work in their life. And uh, we started to talk about last week what it really means to overcome. Bible talks about uh, overcoming the world. Bible talks about being an overcomer. The day you got saved, you have the ability to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. And last week, we began the study that will really show how to accomplish that in your life. We had a great introduction to some great, uh, incredible principles that uh, wherever we're at, whatever level spiritually we're on, uh, we can take it and grow from that point. If you're just a young Christian trying to figure out the Bible, well, then you have the ability to build on that. If you're someone that's been around for a while and, and uh, growing in the Word, then you can pick it up and go from there. We're talking about probably the single greatest aspect of the Christian life, and that is the concept of having a biblical balance uh, in our lives. And you remember last week, kind of like was an introduction to it all, but yet uh, I showed you how that uh, God and the Word of God is a perfect, complete balance. It's very important for us to see that because obviously the rest of the things that we are as Christians and the things that we do have to go back to those two concepts. You remember I took you all the way back to the beginning of God's creation, all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And I showed you how that God's original plan was in every way to establish a solid balance in His creation based on the Word of God. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You can't have the beginning of what God's doing and His balance without the Word of God being there. Bible says in Psalms 33, 6, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. For he spake, it was done. He commanded, and he stood still. You cannot separate what God is doing in his balance in creation from the balance of the word of God. And that's why we, we put it all together. We saw the fall of Satan. Talked about it briefly in Genesis 1, 1 and 2, Ezekiel 28, and Isaiah 14. How that when Satan fell, or Lucifer fell and became Satan, it threw the universe out of balance. Then we talked about Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man. How that God recreated the balance, put a garden, a perfect place, and yet man this time decided to go against God and threw the earth uh, out of balance. Then we saw, in a, after a period of time, how that with the crucifixion of Christ and by his death, his resurrection, that God uh, was restoring the ability for man uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ to have that perfect balance uh, that God originally intended. And that's really where we were at last week. It's been said, and it's so true, you've heard me say it many, many times, that all history is, is a simple formula of God moving down history to establish his plan in a perfect balance, and then the devil moving in opposition to it to disrupt that plan and set up a false balance. And that's so true. I told you last week that the fundamental problem with the world system is the fact that it's out of balance. 
Yet at the same time, fundamentally, the problem with most of God's people today and why they can't have the overcoming concept in their life and the victory in their life is because they're out of balance. So we started last week to explain it. Started last week to lay it out, to explore it, to define a biblical balance in four or five areas of our lives that will impact us in every way of life and everything that we do. And, I, and today I want to continue with Proverbs chapter 11, verse 1. And I want to go into it even a little bit deeper today. Uh, I want to look at this biblical balance. Last week we looked at it, as I said, from God and God's Word and saw how that both God and His plan and His Word are balanced. Today I want to look at the ministry. I want to look at our church. I want to look at the concept of the church. And I want to show you 10 uh, principles about a balance. Now, there's probably 100 of them, 200 of them, but we don't have time to go through them all. I picked out the main ones that I think that will really help you. And then next week, uh, we're going to talk about the balance and going to show you some concepts uh, in your own personal relationship with Christ, how to get a perfect balance in your life how to get a perfect balance in your family, uh, in your relationship with someone that you're uh, thinking about getting married with, or your wife or your husband that you're already married to, your children, and all the issues of life. And when we're done with it, you're going to have a pretty good idea of uh, what a balance is, and we'll uh, work on it from there. Now, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 1, read it again here so we know, have a context to start. It says this, A false balance is abomination to the Lord. But a just weight is his delight. Let's pray. Father, help us today to uh, grab the Word of God in our hearts and to hide it and to grab these concepts and to understand them and help me to make it clear and plain to these good people that uh, there is a process that they can go through to establish themselves uh, as a good balance in their life. We love you. We thank you for all you do for us now. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, I have a fundamental rule that I always follow when it comes to God and the Bible. I I use this rule all the time. It's something that's been with me for probably 40 years, and I learned it very early in life, and I thank God for it. It really helps me to keep my balance. It really helps me to keep uh, my doctrine straight. And it's a very simple rule, but, you know, as we all know, most things that are profound in our lives are usually very simple things in the Bible. It's man who makes it complicated. But simply it's this. Never put more emphasis on something in the Bible than God does. Now, that sounds like a simple thing. That is one of the most profound things that you'll ever grasp and understand if you ever get it. Never put more emphasis on something in the Bible more than God does. In other words, always let the Bible set its own priority with, its own, with itself. Let the Bible tell you what the important things are. Don't get in there and decide that you want to believe this, so you're going to orchestrate all of these different things that are going to lead you to believe that this is really important. There's a balance uh, that you've got to have when it comes to the Word of God, and when you let the Bible uh, set its own priorities, you're well on your way to establishing that kind of a balance. I'll give you, I'm going to give you a couple examples this morning. Now, we know that the theme of the Bible is the second coming of Christ. How do I know that? It's called the day of the Lord in the Bible. It's called that day or the day in the Word of God. And I've had people argue with me with that. I've had people think that, you know, salvation was the theme of the Bible. And I'm not, I'm not 
putting salvation is not a very important doctrine in the Bible, but it's not the theme of the Bible. I've had people say, well, I believe that Christ is in the Bible, uh, is the theme of the Bible. Well, he's one of the preeminent uh, figures in the Word of God, but he's not the theme of the Bible. The theme of the Bible is the second coming of Christ. The theme of the Bible is the day of the Lord. You say, how do you know that? Because you're going to find in the Word of God over 1,200 times you find that term. If I found a term in the Bible 1,200 times in the Old Testament, I'm not even talking about the New Testament. If I found one phrase over 1,200 times in 39 books of the Bible, you know what it would lead me to believe? That's a pretty important thing he's trying to emphasize to me. And that's exactly what it is. The day of the Lord is the key and the theme of the Bible that day. God's trying to emphasize something. I'll show you another example. Every book that I ever read on the book of 1 John, and the first John is that little book in the back, not the gospel, but written by the same author, but it's in the back of your Bible, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. It's only got five chapters in it. Every book you're going to read, every commentary you're going to get on it, every preacher I ever heard will tell you that the theme of that book is love. Every, oh, they all do. They're all going to tell you, every book you read, every preacher you hear, they're going to say, now the theme of this book is love. And you know that's not true. You go through those five little chapters, and you know, 27 times in five short chapters, you find the word to know. You find the word knowing. You find the word to know God. The theme of that book is not love. The theme of that book is getting to know God. But you see, that's, that's 21st century Christianity, isn't it? We always try to love God without knowing God. You know, that's the problem with God's people today. You know why you, know why you, you go along with God for a short time and then you don't go with him anymore? You get saved and you love him and then six weeks later you get a better deal and you don't love him anymore? You know why? Because you fell in love with him. And when you fall in love with somebody, then it's easy to fall out of love with that person when you get a better deal. The key to any relationship, certainly the key to a relationship with God, is not just loving that person, but getting to know God. And when you get to know God, you can't help but love God. And you see, that's how it works. 27 times in that little book. Never take something that God doesn't emphasize and make it your chief doctrine in the Bible. Never do that. I'll show you another one. Uh, You take the concept of tongues. Uh, we got brethren and good people who believe in speaking in tongues. And when you talk with them, I've talked with them all my life. Some of my best friends uh, believe in speaking in tongues. And I'm not criticizing them at all in any way, shape, or form. But what I'm telling you is this. They will give you the illusion. And I've asked them this. I've asked them this before. They have no answer. They give you the impression that everybody in the Bible is speaking in tongues. You realize when you put my rule to it, you only find somebody speaking in the Bible, speaking in tongues in the Bible three times. And they're all in the book of Acts. Three times. You see how not following that little rule will get you out of balance every time? Three times in the book of Acts, somebody speaks in tongues. Paul writes seven books to the churches. He writes four books to pastors. He tells them how to pray. He tells them how to read the Bible. He tells them they should preach the Bible. He tells them they should win souls. He tells them they should work for God. He tells them they should help others. But when it comes to tongue, he never says a word to them. All this concept of tongues and speaking in tongues, three times in your Bible, in the book of Acts, never one time does he write it to the church. 
other than 2 Corinthians, where he's not instructing them to do that. He's telling them, you guys are screwed up and you're doing this wrong. That little rule is one of the greatest little things to help you keep the balance. Don't ever build your whole belief system on something that is so minute in the Bible. Make sure you you never emphasize something more than God does. I'll give you another good example. We have in Christianity today a heresy called Calvinism. And Calvinism is a teaching. Sometimes you hear it called today. It's been kind of been resurrected in the last 30 years. Now they call it Reformation theology. And uh, we know it, for those of us who know a little bit about the Bible, as the aspect of predestination. And it simply comes down to basically, and I'm not going to get into it in a great way today. I'm just going to show you these examples. It basically is a sovereignty of God. What does that mean? It means that God is sovereign. It means that God is supreme. And it's basically the sovereign of God versus the free will of man. Basically what it teaches is the fact that God in his sovereignty looked down into history long, or in the future long before you and I were born. And in his sovereignty, God picked you to be saved, picked you to be lost. He picked you to be saved and you to be lost. He picked some people to go to heaven and some people to die and go to hell. And if you're one of the ones he picked, there's nothing you can do to keep from going to heaven. And if you're one of the ones he didn't pick, there's nothing you can do to get to heaven. That's Calvinism in its basic form. That's Reformation theology. That's predestination. And it's basically, as I said, the sovereignty of God. God's sovereignty willing some of you to go to heaven and some of you to go to hell. Versus the Bible teaching of the free will of man. The Bible teaches that every man, every woman that ever walked this planet has a free will. And God's spirit reaches down and touches them. And then based on your free will, you decide whether you're going to go to heaven or not. God never has no choice in it. God allows you to decide. That's free will. And it's basically the sovereignty of God versus the free will of man. And, you know, and, and the idea that, that, that there, God chose some of you to go to heaven and some to go to hell, it's ridiculous. Now, how do you, how, why do I say that? Because I, I follow my little rule. That little rule has never failed me in over 40 years of, of studying the Bible. In the Bible, I find free will 17 times. I never find the sovereignty of God one place. Now, why would you build a whole system of your beliefs on a term that's never found in the Bible and then still claim to be a Christian-based organization that believes the Bible? You don't believe the Bible. If you did, you'd believe in free will 17 times. And when it comes to sovereignty of God, you couldn't find it in there with a laser beam and a flashlight. That's, but it gets better than that. In fact, the heresy of Calvinism is built on five points. And point one is limited atonement. That means that God limited his salvation to some, not everybody gets it. Irresistible grace. If you're one of the ones chosen, you're irresistibly drawn to God. If you're not, you're, ir- you're never going to be drawn to God. Unconditional election. God chose you before the foundation of the world. <clears throat> Total depravity and the perseverance of the saints. Now, here's a whole religion that has built itself on five terms. 
And I dare you any place, anytime, anywhere, I'll pay you $100 million for each of these if you can find them in the Bible. And you boast out there and say, you don't have that much money. Hey, pal, I could get it together before you could find the verses. They're not in there. I'm telling you, learn this little rule. Never emphasize something more than God does. Never do. That little rule will help you in keeping you the right balance, giving you a just weight. Now, our church is built on seven absolute Bible teachings. And basically, this is going to be a message today that's going to tell you if this church is the right church or not. I don't want you to believe it because I tell you it is. We're going to, hey, if this church, if any church cannot stand the scrutiny of going to the Bible to find out if it really believes the Bible, then you better, it's suspect. You better check it out and look deeper. Now, our church is built on seven absolute Bible teachings, and they are clearly found in the Scriptures hundreds of times, and they've been part of our belief system for over 1,900 years. We believe, number one, the deity of Christ. We believe, number two, the eternal security of the believer. We believe, number three, that baptism doesn't save you, it just gets you wet, that only the blood of Christ can wash away your sins, and only adults, and we never baptize or sprinkle babies. We believe in the premillennial return of Christ. We believe that the local church and the priesthood are the believers. We believe within the church, there's two offices that the church holds, a pastor and a deacon, and they're both run by men. We believe that the Word of God is absolutely God's final authority. And when I say the Word of God, I'm talking about a King James 1611 authorized version. Those are the seven Baptist distinctives that are found throughout the Bible. The Bible-based doctrines go back through the true line, all through the church, all the way back to Antioch. I didn't invent them. Somebody that I knew down in history didn't invent them. We just know who we are, what our heritage is as God's people, and what we believe and why. And it's just that simple. Now today, as I said a minute ago, we're going to use our church and our ministry here, this work of God, and we're going to see if it passes the biblical test. Oh, I get criticized many, many times for talking about other churches. Okay, I'm preaching on this one this morning. I'm even playing the playing field. I've said it to them. Now, if this church cannot stand that test of the Bible, then you guys better find someplace else to go next week. No, I don't even wait till next week. <laughs> Self-examination, self-scrutiny is always good. Some of you ought to try it sometime. But if this church can't face that biblical test and scrutiny, then we better look at it. You've heard me say many, many times. My job as pastor here, understanding the time that I live in and understanding a little bit about the Bible, understanding the history of the church and how the book of Revelation lays out the seventh period of church history, how each one of them lays itself out down through, actually through history. You've heard me say it many, many times. The greatest church period of history was uh, the Philadelphian church age. It was about 1600 to 1900. And the most despicable church history period is the one we're living in right now called the Laodicean. And I've told you many, many times, we're stuck here. I wish we could have been born someplace else. It would have been a great deal. But we're stuck here. God allowed us to be born where he did and put us together where he did. So my goal is simply this, to build in this sickening Laodicean church period, build a Philadelphian church. Build a church that still stands on the truth, still preaches the truth, still believes the truth, and takes people in and let the word of God transform them and then put them back out to set the world on fire. 
Now, with that idea, there are certain characteristics that a New Testament Bible-believing church has to have. So you follow and see if we're on track or not based on the Bible. Now, in the New Testament church, there has to be a base of works for God, a base of operation that does the work of God. He called us to, uh, to do, and uh, allow me to just briefly define that for you. Now, there's another heresy in the world of Christianity, and that is that you can work your way to heaven. It's the teaching that, uh, that uh, your good works will get you to heaven. That if you give money or you do this or do a lot of social work or help people and all that stuff and all that's good and all that's certainly part of Christianity, but that doesn't get you to heaven. Works will never get you to heaven in any way, shape, or form. The Bible says, by grace are you saved through faith, Ephesians 2.8, uh, and not of works, lest any man should boast. But I want you to know this. You don't work your way to heaven you clearly understand that, amen? amen? I don't want any confusion here. You understand. You don't work your way to heaven. But after salvation, brother, you do work your way to and through the judgment seat of Christ. Amen. There's a work to be done. There's a work to be done. The Bible says, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, Study to show thyself approved unto God. A what? Amen. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now let's look at that. Not, needeth not to be ashamed. Now, do you know where that ashamed shows up? Do you? It shows up in the Laodicean church in Revelation chapter 3, verse 18. When God talks about that church and how despicable it is, he says, he says, you better get some eye salve. You better get some eye salves and put it on your eyes so you can see that the shame of your nakedness do not appear. Now, do you know where it appears? Amen. Moving right on through it. 1 Second Corinthians chapter 5, 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He's telling us very clearly that you better be a workman. Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the greatest chapter in the Bible on the judgment seat of Christ, that every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it. Of what sort it is. He's going to sort it out. He's going to sort it out. You say, well, your church is built on work. You bet it is, brother, the work of Christ. Amen. And after you get saved by grace, there's a work that needs to be done. Bible says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for destruction, and righteousness. That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto what? All good works. There's a job to get done. See, you get to heaven by grace, not by works. But brother, after salvation, you got to work your way through the judgment seat of Christ by what you did. The work for him. Now, in that respect, this church is based on the work of God in your life. My goal is to get you to work. That's my goal. My goal is to get you saved, get you discipled, build some things into your life, help you work through and overcome some things. But I have an ulterior motive, and that ulterior motive is to get you to do the work that God saved you for, that he died for you for. That's my job. Somebody said, well, I just don't know about that. Then you need to go to Matthew chapter 20, and you'll find there in that chapter a great study on the five shifts of going to work in the, in, since from, from Christ came right up to the time we live in. Five periods of history where the workers go into the vineyard. Problem with most of God's people, they don't even know where their shift started. And you'll find thousands of God's people saved and on their way to heaven who have absolutely no work in their life. For God. And they'll resent any church or anybody who does. Do you know what happens when you, in a physical sense, you quit your job 
you don't want to work anymore. You just want to be a bum. And you mooch off others every once in a while. And, and I, But you know what ultimately happens when you don't have a, a work in your life that you go to every week? You become destitute, broken, and you become in deep trouble. And in a spiritual sense, it's the same way. Do you know what happens as a Christian when you will not work for God? You become spiritually destitute and broken. It's the same thing. Now, I want to talk to you about 10 principles of balance today in our church and our ministry. And we're going to put it to the test today. We're going to find out. We're going to line this thing right up with the Bible. Who knows? I may become a Episcopalian right after we're done today. Now, do you want, here's the first one. Now, do you want to balance in your, in your Christian life that it's the balance of this church? Here it is, three things. A church, a Christian life should be three things. It should be a walk with God. It should be a worship for God. And it should be a work of God. Walk with God. First John chapter 1, verse 7, we walk in the light as he is the light. We have fellowship one with another. Worship. John 4, chapter 4, verse 24 says that we worship God in spirit and truth. A work for God, a work for God. We need to not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2, 15. And you'll find people with a walk but no worship or work. You'll find people with a work but no walk. Some people don't have any of these things. But to be complete and have a balance for a church who's producing Christians, you need to teach them that they need to have a walk with God, a worship for God, and then a work of God. That's a New Testament Bible-based church. It'll have a balance to it. The job of the pastor is to keep that balance as, it, as best he can by preaching and teaching. Not everybody will be happy with that. Some people won't want to get, have a work and they're going to get upset about it. But you know what? As long as God delights himself in it, as he says in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 1, get over it. Get over it. Now the second thing. Now, in time, and I know this is, I'm just going to, I'm not going to get into this in any detail, but I'm, I'm telling you this morning. I'm just telling you. In time, uh, not today, not maybe next week, maybe not even this year, but in time, you're going to have to develop a good understanding of church history because it will give you uh, your roots and it will provide a balance in all that you believe. Now, churches today, uh, as Christians in those churches, they, they need to have three things that will give them a balance. This is number two, by the way. We need to have three things in our church, and you need to have three things in your life that this church teaches you. And it's about history. First of all, you need to know what you believe. You need to know what you believe. But I want to tell you something. Knowing what you believe is not really all there is to it, it's not only important to know what you believe, but you need to know why you believe it. We got a lot of Christians that run around just Paul parroting what they hear. <clears throat> they read some book or they get on some website or <clears throat> they hear their preacher or somebody say something and they never investigate it. They never go down to it. Not like the Calvinist people. <clears throat> they never stop and consider, wow, what I believe is great. Just isn't in the Bible. Now, that may not bother some people. That would bother me. That would bother me. So you need to know what you believe. And then you need to know, second thing, why you believe it. And then the third thing, that's not enough. To make the complete balance, you got to know what you believe, why you believe it. But then you got to know where did that belief come from. 
You get those three things down in your life, and everything that you do, when you believe about the Bible, you're going to get a balance. You're going to get a balance. Now, the importance of history and the Bible. <clears throat> Somebody says, why is that so important in my life? Because the Bible is a history book. That's why. Bibles are many things, and the Bible lays itself out in many ways. But one of the premier things that the Bible does is give you a complete accurate understanding of history, not from CNN or Fox News or Bill O'Reilly, but from God's standpoint. And that's important. Because if you're going to get a balance in history, you're going to have to realize that time has three parts to it. It has a past, it has a present, it has a future. And I say it all the time. If you don't know where you've come from, you have no idea where you're going. Don't kid me. If you don't know where you come from, you don't know where you're going. And if you don't know where you come from and you don't know where you're going, please don't tell me you know where you're at. You're caught in that maze of life. In church history, it'll be balanced around three groups of men when you begin to study it. And I'm not getting into it deep. I just want to make my point today. From time of Christ up to about 500 A.D., they're called apostolic church fathers. Anti-Nicene church fathers, post-Nicene church fathers. The last two built around the council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. All of church history, all of history around man will be built around those three. Once you get past 500 A.D., these three men will produce a th- a three more groups of people that are larger now. <clears throat> and from 500 A.D. up to where we live today in 2015, you're going to find three more groups of people. You're going to find biblical men. You're going to find non-biblical men. And you're going to find compromising men. These men are groups that will form for you a balance in history. I mean, come on. Do you ever wonder? There's a thousand churches out there today, and there's a thousand denominations out there, and there's 10,000 beliefs out there, and you can find a different church in every church corner in America or around the world, but up to up from the time you come through the Bible, when you come through it, and you get up to from 33 A.D. to 1500, First 1,500 years, there's only two churches. Only two. There's not three. There's not four. There's not six or seven. There's only two. Now, why don't you know that? Here we are today with 10,000 churches, 50,000 beliefs. Everybody's got a denomination. I got this, I got that, I'm this, I'm that. But for 1,500 years till 1,500, there was only two denominations, there was only two churches, there was only two Bibles, and there was only two fundamental beliefs. How did it get so screwed up from there to here? Well, you better find out at some point in your life. Not today. Not today. You're going to find that these three groups will always be associated with three cities found in the Bible. Charles Dickens, way many, many years ago, wrote a book called A Tale of Two Cities. Most of you probably read it in school. When God wrote his book, in the book of Acts, it was The Tale of Three Cities. The first one is Antioch of Syria. That's where they're first called Christians in Antioch. The first New Testament church is found in Antioch. The first Bible teachers and preachers are found in Antioch. The first ministry trained, uh, people trained for the ministry is in Antioch. The first missionary trips come out of Antioch. Antioch is the model church for the New Testament. The true biblical line of the New Testament Christianity starts in Antioch, and you can trace it all the way up to the 21st century if you understand the balance. Antioch is good. The second city is Alexandria, Egypt. 
founded by Alexander the Great in 323 B.C., but later, under Egyptian rule, became the cultural center of the world by the first century and the seat of all worldly knowledge. The library at Alexandria was unparalleled uh, in its knowledge in a worldly sense. It's here where the first Bible corruptions take place. It's here where men like Philo, Pantanus, Clement of Alexandria, and Origen took the manuscripts out of Antioch and corrupted them over 60,000 places. It's defined in the Bible as not a good place. Egypt in the Bible is a type of the world. Pharaoh is one of the types of the Antichrist. Joseph said, when you guys come out, don't leave my bones in Egypt. He didn't want to stay there. The third city defined there for you is Rome. You've got to get a balance of these three. The date of the founding of Rome is unknown. Four or five hundred years before Christ, Rome had come to power in and, and the Roman Empire, and she ruled the world by the time that Christ shows up. And she was responsible for millions and millions of Christians being put to death for their faith in Christ. Rome has always been and always will be the greatest enemy that Christianity ever had on this earth. It was Rome that killed John the Baptist. It was Rome that tried to kill the baby Jesus. It was Rome that crucified Christ. It was Rome that had him beaten, had him whipped. They put a Roman robe on him. It was Rome that crucified him. Rome killed millions of Christians uh, down through the 19th centuries afterwards. Uh, Rome uh, killed and, and converted the, uh, uh, corrupted the New Testament word of God and set up a false religion to help the, uh, keep the true church from ever getting the job that God wanted to do. Why in the world would anybody today following a Bible balance think that there's anything going to come out of good of Rome because they don't know the balance. Now, what are you all so quiet for? Don't get mad at me. I didn't write that. Now, I said we were going to find out if we're a Bible-based church or not. Maybe you don't want to be, but I do. I want what's right. I want to know in history where it's right and where it's right. Maybe you don't care. I care. I care. Now, to understand the history of the Bible, to get a balance between these three cities, they represent three groups of manuscripts that all Bibles come from. Your King James Bible you got in your lap comes out of Antioch. It's called the Byzantine text down in history. We don't have time to get into all of it today. We could spend months on it. The text out of Egyptian is called the Hesychian, and it's bad. And the one out of the Roman Catholic Church came out of Egypt, a little bit later on, and corrupted the, uh, everything that was around it. Now, the true Bible-believing church of Jesus Christ has always been here. This is my point. You have to know where it's been. You have to know not just what you believe. You need to know why you believe it, but that's not enough either today. You better know where that belief came from. And if you don't know it, you're vulnerable The real Bible-believing church and real Bible-believing Christians of Jesus Christ has always been down through history. Sometimes it's hard to see. Sometimes it's been overshadowed by all the stuff that goes on. About four or five months ago, I was talking to a guy I met, and I can tell very quickly he didn't like me, and I I couldn't understand that. I'm the most likable guy on the planet. But he knew I was a pastor. And... um, we were talking back and forth, and I could feel this rough edges, Jamie, or, you know how they are, huh? Jamie's always coming over and webbing off my rough edges when she's thinking of having a bad day. And he, he had some rough edges. And he, he said to me, he says, so I hear you're a Baptist. I said, yes, I am. He says, huh. He says, I got a question for you. I said, what's that? He says, where was your church before the Reformation? I said, oh, that's easy. Well, where was it? Let me ask you a question. Where was your face before you washed it? 
<laughs> behind the dirt. You know where my church was before the Reformation? It was behind the dirt of all the other false stuff that was coming out. They were there. They were there in the Algensians and the Waldensians. They were there in the Huguenots and the Polyseans. They were there in the Catharii. They were all down through there. But you see, we get the idea because we don't want to find out where we came from. We don't care about our roots. We don't get a balance in those things. Now we are, and we make no apology for it, we're a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. And we do a work for God to the best of our ability as God gives us the light to do it. Emphasizing salvation with God without emphasizing a work for God is heresy. You know why? Because, there again, the model of the New Testament church. Every man in the New Testament, in the book of Acts from on, who got saved, got in the New Testament church, and did a work for God. Did a work for God. Now, I know, I know, some of your friends will not like that and give you a tough time with that. They don't have any work for God. They're out of, they're out of balance completely, and they're going to not knock you down to make themselves feel better, but that's just the way it is. Now, here's the third thing. Do you want to do a work for God? Make no apology for it, because in the Bible, the balance for you and me is to, set, uh, is to get uh, um, some things down the day we get saved in three aspects. Now, I want to talk about this church in threefold aspects of a church and a Christian, from getting saved and getting the Word of God in your life. The day you got saved, this church preaches it, and the day you got saved, salvation affects you in three things, and it balances you out. The first thing it affects you in is your head. The second thing it affects you in is your heart. And the third thing it affects you in is your feet. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10 said, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession made unto salvation. Now there's your head and there's your heart. First time you heard the salvation, it went into your head. And when you decided to do something about it, you know where it went from your head? It went into your heart. And when it goes into your heart, you know where it's supposed to go next? Into your feet. Do something for God. When did you ever get the idea that you just got saved and then instead of standing on the promises, you just sit on the premises? When did you ever get the idea that once you got saved, you didn't work? You're out of balance. Salvation affected your head. It affected your heart. And it affects your feet. That's why in Exodus chapter 12 at the Passover, all the way back there in the book of Exodus, what a great study that is on the crucifixion. They eat the Passover lamb. After they eat the Passover lamb, you know what God tells them to do? He says, after you eat that lamb, picture receiving Christ, he says, get your staff on your hands, get your shoes on your feet. You know why? You're going to move out. You're going to do something. Psalm 119, 105 says, thy word is a lamp under my feet and a light under my path. You're going someplace after you're saved. Romans 10, 15 says, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring good tidings to good things. Your feet, you're supposed to go someplace. At Ephesians chapter 6, 15, talking about the whole armor of God, it says that you and I are to have our feet shod with a preparation of the gospel. The preparation. When you get saved, it gets in your head, it gets in your heart, and it gets in your feet. And if it ain't in your feet this morning, you're out of balance. Nothing personal. You're out of balance. See how simple that is? You want to work for God in your life? This church is going to teach you how to uh, work for God and get the Word of God in three things in your life. Get it into your head, get it into your heart, get it into your feet. 
Now, how easy, how easy could that be? See, the problem is God's people are out of balance. And I'll tell you, again, there's a lot of people who get it in their head who never get it in their heart. A lot of people who get it in their head and their heart never gets in their feet. You want to be balanced? Amen. Do you? You want to be balanced? Head, heart, and feet. God's got a job for you to do. That's the job of this church. Fourth thing. Now, we take and follow models in the Bible. Because we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse, uh, uh, verse 11, that we're told that uh, the things that happened in the Old Testament to the nation of Israel are for us. The Bible says that they're for our examples and our examples. An example is something that you do. An example is something that you are. So we go back to Joshua chapter 1, that great book on the battle of Christian life in the Old Testament, and we find a balance of my attitude toward the Word of God. The attitude of this church will produce the attitude that's the right attitude in you if this church is doing its job. He says in chapter 1, verse 6, Be strong and of a good courage, for unto this people thou shalt divide for an inheritance that which, uh, land which I swear unto their fathers to give them. The first thing he says there is that you and I are to believe the Word of God. God made you some promises. Do you know that? The day you got saved, God made you some promises. He gave you a book of promises. The question is, did he or did he not? The question is, how many of those promises have you cashed in on since you've been saved? And the first thing he says there is you need to believe the book. Then he says in chapter 1, verse 7, Only be thou strong and very courageous, and thou mayest observe to do according to all the law, which Moses my servant commanded thee, turn not from it from the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whenever thou goest. All right, the next thing he says, that don't just, don't just believe the book, then you obey the book. You do what it tells you to do. You do what it tells you to do. Over there in Luke, my favorite verse, I think it's Luke chapter 6, dealing with Christians. He says, why call ye me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? There's modern 20th century Christianity. How do people get around that? They get around that because they have no balance. And most churches they go to don't teach a balance. We teach it here. Why some of you don't like it. But you're going to get it anyhow. So he says, believe the book, obey the book, and look chapter 1, verse 9. Have I not commanded thee, be strong and of a good courage, be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. All right? Then you want to believe the book, you want to obey the book, and the third thing is, you want to rest in the book. You want to come to the place in your life that the promises God gave you, you know they're going to get you through, so whatever comes in life is going to get you to the point where you know the book's going to get you through. You know, that'll get you through anything in life. I don't care what problem you have. I don't care what heartache comes into your life. If you believe that book is for you and you've learned to rest in that book because you obey it and because you believe it, I don't know one thing in this life is ever going to get you down. Now, you see that? That's a balance for any Christian. That's a balance that every church ought to have. That's a balance of any Christian. We should simply believe it and obey it and rest in it. The fifth thing. Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, it tells me to keep a balance with God and his word uh, in three things. It says, blessed he that readeth, and he that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. All right, you got three things there, see? This church ought to teach you how to read it. This church ought to make sure you hear it. And this church ought to help you keep it. And after you get saved, when you start coming to any church, 
then you ought to read the Word of God, you ought to hear what it says, and you ought to do your best to keep it. A lot of people read the Bible, they just never hear it. (laughs) A lot of people read it, and they hear it, they just don't follow it. They don't do it. The key is to read it, hear what it says, and then keep it. Hide that word in your heart, Psalm 119, verse 11 says. All right, the sixth thing. This church has ministries. The ministry is people. We minister to people. And when I work with people and when you work with people, we try to give them a balance by giving them three things in their life. Many times they don't know it. I don't understand it. But we do. So uh, we're trying to accomplish something. Colossians chapter 2 verse 7 says this. As ye have therefore received Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk ye in him. That's good advice. Here it comes, verse 7. Here's my job. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. All right, then the job of this church is threefold. The job of you working with somebody in this church is threefold. The first thing you do is you get that person rooted. You get their roots down. You do that with discipleship one, discipleship two, spending time with them, helping them. We do it in various ways around here, but it's getting their roots down in the Bible. You know, a tender plant, a plant that you just put in the ground, you have to protect till its roots get down pretty deep. You don't want to get too cold weather on it or too much rain or too much sun. You want to get the roots down. So you protect it. After uh, about six or seven months, that thing can stand any test of anything in the weather. That's the way it is with God's people. When you first come in here and you need to help and you're tender, like a tender root, you want to get your rooted. So we kind of protect you. We put the things in your life, give you everything you need, help you every way we can. Our job is to get you rooted. Once you get you rooted, then the next job of the church is to build you up. It's to take now what you've rooted and now you got down this way. Now we got to go this way. We got you down deep. Now we got to get you growing up. We got your roots down in the word of God. Now we got to get your stature up where you're growing and doing something for the Lord. So we root you first and then we, we build you up. That's edification. That's helping you. That's me looking at you and finding out and looking and seeing what God's got for you and what your qualities are and, some of, uh, and, and what the things that you look like you're good at and then help develop it. It's you coming into me and saying, you know what, I really want to do this and I want to get involved in this, but I don't know how. Let me help you how. That's building you up. So when this church roots people down in the Word of God and then builds them up, the third thing we try to do is establish you. Now, establish you is not just to establish you in the church, but to establish you in your own relationship with God that you know who you are in Christ. Because that's the number one fundamental thing. If you don't know who you are in Christ, and you don't know what your relationship should be with Him and what His should be with you, then you got some issues in your life. I'm here to help you with it. We can fix it. But, brother, some things need to be done. So the job of this church and the job for a Christian is threefold. It's to root you in the Word of God, build you up in the Word of God, and to establish you in the Word of God. Well, let's look at the next one, number seven. Book of Joshua chapter one again. Again, when you read this great chapter, and, and I don't know if you guys, uh, you gals, all of these three things I'm giving you, each one of them is a sermon. Well, I've got these developing their sermons. I could preach an hour and a half on each one of them. You get into volleyball this fall and, or in the next couple of weeks and you start to want to put devotions together. Here they are. This is some of the greatest devotional material you ever get. Some of the greatest preaching material you ever get. Now, in the book of Joshua, again, you find in the ministry, you need a balance for ministry uh, and in our lives for three things. 
And I'll tell you right now, when I read that chapter, these three things stick out like a sore thumb. And I'm honest with you, these are the character qualities that I look for in people. I want you all to be part of my ministry. I want you all to have a work with God because God saved you for it. God didn't save you to sit. God saved you to do something. You may have chosen to sit and not do anything. That's between you and him. But I'm telling you, fundamentally, from the Bible standpoint, you have no grounds to stand on. God saved you to do a work. I'm not saying the day after you get saved, you go out and become a missionary to Africa. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about fundamentally letting us root you, ground you, and establish you in the Word of God. And the first quality that comes out of here is you find somebody that's faithful in the ministry. You know, you only get out of something what you put into it. Somebody says, well, I can't understand the Bible. That's because you don't do anything to understand it. You know, most people... Yeah, most people, I know how it was when I taught my girls how to drive a car for the first time. It was a disaster. And uh, now they're both really good drivers. But you should have saw them the first time. I remember bought Kelly a, a car that was a stick shift, a little Pinto or something like that, a little something, I forget what it was. And I said, all right, took her out a couple of times, took her around, showed her how to drive it. And I said, okay, stay in the neighborhood, drive up and down the streets, get used to getting on a hill and letting that clutch out. Go ahead, stick. Every girl needs to know how to drive a stick. So I said, get up there and do it. So she, uh, she's gone a little bit. And next thing I know, I, I see her in the front porch and she's crying and the car's parked up in the middle of the street. She couldn't get it up the hill. She just turned it off and left it. We won't even go with Jamie during how to drive a car. She, she, but both of them are great drivers now. They really are. They keep the insurance companies in business. Jamie's the only girl I know go around a corner and blow two tires out on this side and never know why she did it. And then when Danny tries to ask her why, her answer is so simple, like every woman. I don't know why. I just need two tires. You know, you didn't drive very good the first time. You, if, if, if you would apply your driving like you do the Bible, you'd be, you'd be taking a bus to work. Why is it that you'd work so hard to learn how to drive, but you won't work so hard to learn this book? When you started your job the first day, remember them butterflies you had? You didn't know what was going on. Everybody around you knew what was happening, knew how to pull this and pull that, where this file was, where this was, or where these parts were, and you're just kind of lost for a while. I promise you, six, seven months after you're there, you could keep up with the best of them. Why is it that you'll work so hard to learn how to do your job, but you'll not work very hard to learn this book? Why, if I didn't know this Bible was the Word of God any other way, I'd know it because we'll invest time in learning everything else in life. But when it comes to this, I don't understand it. That's because you only get out of something what you put into it. Amen. You're not putting anything in it. That's all. It's not complicated. Nobody's mad at you. We all love you. You're a good person. No problem. But you gotta, you gotta, you gotta be, you gotta be fearless in the ministry, faithful in the ministry. You gotta, you gotta learn how to do what God has called you to do. And then the second thing, you have to be fearless in the ministry. I'm gonna tell you something. And this will be true of everybody here. I know it sounds nice. Well, I'm going to go get in a Bible-believing church, and I'm going to learn the Bible, and I know this. Let me tell you something. There's always going to be a cost associated with that. Not everybody's going to be as happy as you are about it. And at some point in your life, you're going to have to display the courage and the fearlessness to take your stand. 
I don't know where I'd be right now. I'd probably be in a, main, a sane asylum someplace. If many, many years ago, when I saw that book, I made up my mind that I didn't care who believed it or who liked it or who didn't like it. I saw what it was. I saw what it could do for me. And I dug my stand on that book right there and it never wavered off of it. And it'll be something in your life at some point, maybe with your friends, maybe with your parents, maybe with your work people, at some place, you're going to have to take your stand. And you're going to have to be fearless about it. And that's hard for a lot of people because most people don't like confrontation. Most people don't like people being mad at them. They don't like people being upset with them. Hey, let me tell you something. Follow this plan. Be in hot water so long you get hard boiled. (laughs) My advice to you. So you got to be faithful in the ministry. You got to be fearless in the ministry. Then you got to be fervent in the ministry. That's passion for the things of God. Now, you know me, I enjoy life, and I like the things of life. Nothing wrong with having a nice car, nothing wrong with having a nice house, nothing wrong with having all the nice things of life, not a thing wrong with it. I have a nice house, I have a nice car, I have two, four, five, six, or seven now nice dogs, it's all great. <laughs> all kinds of things in life is good. But I want to tell you something, you got to keep it in balance. I know people who take more care of their lawn than they do the ministry in the church. I mean, I got people in my neighborhood that just, I mean, they're meticulous about their lawn. And my lawn, hey, there's bare spots in it, dogs running up and down the backyard. In the spring, you get this chem lawn man out here that's that spraying to keep the dandelions down. What is wrong with dandelions? Personally, I think they all work for the CIA when they spray your yard. It's listening devices all through there. They're hearing what you're saying. And my neighbors don't like me because of the fact that I got dandelions. They even tell the Kemlon man, why don't you go over and talk to him? I had a guy last year, last spring, Kemlon guy pulled up out there. He just sprayed the other lawn. And he says, hey, he says, I can get rid of these for you. No problem at all. He says, I can spray that yard and they'll be gone in a week. And I said, why? What's wrong with them? And I says, and while you're at it, go back and tell all my neighbors that I do not appreciate them dumping all their dandelions in my yard because they don't have any and they're all over here. I've seen people that had swimming pools. And, in my, you know, I think of my, my sister and my brother, though they do a great thing for the Lord, but they got a huge, almost Olympic swimming pool in their back where they play. It's huge. I mean, those things are a lot of work. Don't listen to her. She has no idea what she's talking about. She, she has no idea. She, she wouldn't know an Olympic swimming pool if it fell out of the tree. It's a big pool. It's a big pool. You know it's a big it's pool. A nice pool. Well, come on. You, know, you need to get control of yourself. When I lie, you're supposed to help me out with it, man. I know the work. They got, they got, a, they got a pool house. In the pool house, they got things they put on the wall. That the, they got little long poles with little strainers on them. They're dipping out at night, dipping the bugs out. They got something that goes across the bottom, eating whatever it eats down there. Mechanical thing, not a live thing. It's got a big hose on it. It got chlorine in it. But I have the chlorine in the water bottle. That's a lot of work, man. Many times that takes the place of the work of God. 
And I'm just telling you, and I'm somebody who loves life, but you've got to be faithful in the ministry. You've got to be fearless in the ministry. You've got to be fervent in the ministry. Along with that, number eight, when it comes to uh, the ministry and dealing with people, in any ministry, you're all going to find three kinds of people who form the out-of-balance crowd. In any church, and I don't care what church it is, you're going to find people who know what's going on. You're going to find people within that same church who don't have a clue what's going on. And then you're going to find people within that same church who don't care what's going on. And in the ministry, and they're in every church. You're going to have 20 people. I, I, I remember a time in the past, I've asked, stopped, and I've asked, hey, in the last six months, we've had 12 people saved. Do you know who they are? People in this church didn't even have a clue. And the interesting thing for me, looking over from my perspective, is watching God's people go from knowing what's going on to not caring what's going on. The ninth thing, ministries to people, a work of God. And to be basically biblical, balanced in all that we do, uh, this church follows three formats that you'll notice. We preach, we teach, and we pray. We preach on Sunday morning and Thursday nights. We teach you through discipleship one, two, and all the different things we got going on and all the myriad of special classes that we have. And we pray. We have our prayer groups. We take our prayer requests. We're praying for each other all week long. And churches in accordance with the book of Ephesians exist for just three reasons. He says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, that he gave some apostles, some prophets, and some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. And then he says three things that the church is for. For the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. It all performs the balance. Now, do you begin to see how all this will work as to putting a balance in your life? The job of a pastor, the job of a church, the job of a ministry is to put all these balances together for you in a daily workable format. You don't get them all at one time. They have to be built in as you get rooted in. Now, one more shot here, and then I'll be finished. Number 10. We call our church Old Paths Baptist Church. Out of Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16. And I know that, you know, I can always tell where a person's at in the Bible, but when you say, what church do you go to? And you say, well, I go to Old Paths Baptist Church. And they'll say, huh, what? <laughs> Old Patch? <laughs> now, I picked that name for a reason. It says, Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways, and see, and ask for the old paths, where was the good way, and walk therein. And ye shall find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk therein. Also I sent watchmen over you, saying, Hearken to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, We will not hearken. Now, there's a real science to names of churches. I don't know if you know that or not. I love, I love names of churches. I love to <clears throat> drive around town. I always think in a, how it does. <clears throat> you find some churches are called Bible Baptist Church. Emphasis on the Bible. I like that. Find some churches called Antioch Baptist Church. They're tying their roots to Antioch. I like that. I came out of my home church in Ohio. It was called the Canton Baptist Temple. Baptist, but the temple connected with the temple being your body. You'll find some churches are called Grace Baptist Church. Emphasis on grace. Some are called Fellowship Baptist Church. Emphasis on fellowship. 
you have some called New Hope Baptist Church. Emphasis on the new hope you get when you get saved. <clears throat> some churches are named after places in the Bible. Some churches are named after doctrines in the Bible. Some churches are named after geograph- ge- ge- geographical locations within the city. We have down the road here a place called Tri-City. Tri-City is a church that's between three cities, so it's called Tri-City. See, I had a buddy of mine out in Las Vegas. <clears throat> he had a church in Las Vegas, Nevada, and he was called a Paradise Baptist Church. We always give him a tough time because it was Paradise Baptist Church, you know, <laughs> worked for him. I've seen a New Life Baptist Church, emphasis on a new life. I've seen some old-time churches that are called Shiloh Baptist. Shiloh is a very important place in the Bible. Some churches get way carried away, you know. I've seen churches of the fellowship table with the Bible and Grace and the Holy Spirit Baptist Church. <laughs> I don't think they know what they believe. <laughs> Could you imagine getting that on a T-shirt? <laughs> now, <clears throat> I pick Old Past Baptist Church because it makes a statement. And on who we are and what we teach and what we preach, and I think it shows the balance that I want to have here. He says in verse 16, Thus saith the Lord, stand in the ways, and see and ask for the old paths. Where is the good way? And walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk therein. So I picked Old Past Baptist Church based on that verse because it says there, stand, it says there that uh, uh, ask for the old paths. Our church is still on the old path. Amen. Nothing modern about us. We don't move into the moderistic world where we change the message so we can make you feel good. We don't, we don't cater to all of the things you know, that go on to make a beautiful building so you'll come here and get a warm, fuzzy feeling. We are, we're, we're still on the old path. Our roots go back to Antioch, and we simply believe what the line of heritage has believed, and we still teach it. We don't, uh, we, we, you know, what a lot of things that we believe <clears throat> would be quoted as heresy today by many other Baptist churches. And you know what the tragedy of that is? A hundred years ago, what we believe was standard in every Baptist church in this country. They've changed. We haven't. And by the grace of God, we never will. We're going to go the old way, or the old path. The Bible says it's the good way because it's based on the Bible and not man. And then it says, stand in the ways. And this church not only stays on the old path, but we stand in the old way. It's God's way. We believe still that there's a way of righteousness that we ought to live our lives. We believe there's a way of faith that we ought to live our lives. We believe there's a certain way we ought to train up our children. We There's a, a certain way we ought to have and conduct our marriages. There's a certain way that we ought to induct the principles of God in our life. There's a certain way of truth that we should follow. There's a certain way of holiness that we should try to live. Uh, that we, we, there's a way of ministry by doing the work of God. And we walk therein and then rest in what God has given us. So we're still on the old path. We're still standing on the old way. And the third one, we're still preaching the old book. Amen. It says in verse 17, a watchman sounding the trumpet. In the Old Testament, the watchman watched for the enemy to come, and when he saw what was happening, he blew the trumpet to warn the city. Job of any pastor is to stand down that wall, watch what's coming, and then blow the trumpet every Sunday morning. 
getting other people to get into the same ensemble, blow the trumpet too. And it happens because you still stay on the old path. You stay in the old ways and you still preach the old book. Now that's where we're at. I've told you many, many times that my goal is to keep this church as close to the New Testament biblical process found in the Bible as we can. And now you see and understand. We put our test, church to the test today. It's Bible-based. It's not perfect. No church is. But it's based on the Bible. And based on the Bible, even when it's not perfect, we have the wherewithal to work out any problem that comes because we just take it back to the Bible. And that's how it works. Now, next week, I'm going to bring you through and show you the balance in your own personal life. I'm going to show it to you in your marriage. Show it to you with your kids. I'm going to show it to you in your relationship with God. And... Uh, we're going to look at the aspect of this. We looked at it last week as God in the Word of God. This week, the church and ministry. Next week, we're going to apply it to ourselves. So let's have a word of prayer. And don't forget the people that I want to see. I already told you who you are. Just very quickly, go get whoever you got to get. Come up here, and we'll get it going. It won't be long at all. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. Thank you for all you do for us. Thank you for today. Thank you for these good people who want to grow and want to be everything that you want them to be. And Lord, we'll just thank you and praise you for all you do for us now. Help us to always stay with the old book, always to stay on the old path, and always stay in the old ways. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For sake we ask it. Amen. Amen.